Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Today, we're joined by California State Senator Ben Allen. He was elected in 2014 to the 26th District. It's here in Southern California. He's currently chair of the Senate Environmental Quality Committee and the legislature's Joint Committee on the Arts. Senator Allen, thank you for passing judgment with us. I'm excited to be here. So first question to you, why did you decide to run for public office? Oh, you know, a deep-seated self-hatred. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, look, I, I find the work fascinating. It, really, it's, 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 it's this kind of interesting mix of being incredibly meaningful, very diverse, and, 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 and ultimately being able to shape the future and, and direction of our society, of our community, be able to solve problems for people uh, in my own home town, in my own home community. Uh, and, and, I, and I will say I love the eclecticism of it. I mean, one of the nice things about running for office is that you, you get to, when, if, if, you're le- if you're lucky enough to be elected, you get to work on so many different issues and, and try your hand at trying to solve so many different kinds of problems. Most people go through life really focused on one or two things, and that's great. I and mean, we, need, we need that sort of expertise. But, um, but every day I get to work on everything from, you know, from parks to roads to schools to finance and insurance and labor issues. I mean, you know, just, just this morning I've worked on you know, probably five different standalone fascinating policy dilemmas. And, and I, I like that eclecticism. What's the most surprising part of being a state senator? Well... I, I mean, I'd say on the disappointment side, I, I suppose I've been surprised by how much some types of decisions are, I'm not going to say predetermined, but how politics and, and the financing of politics can can really uh, come to dominate so many decisions. And I, I, I really, that really distresses me and depresses me. Um, I, I think on the positive side, I've I've just been surprised by how in the end of the day, all the people in the system are, are they're real people. Um, they, they're trying their best to, to make good decisions. They're oftentimes bandied about by political pressures, some of which I just alluded to. Um, uh, one, one little fun thing I would say in terms of surprises, uh, just the, the crazy battles that happen in the, in the legislature between interest groups that, that the average citizen has absolutely no idea even exist. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the plastic surgeons hate the cosmetic surgeons. I didn't even know there was right. a difference, but they're always <laughs> doing battle with each other over licensing issues. You know, with you, you have the, the nurses fighting against the doctors, fighting against the, the pharmaceutical industry and the hospitals and the insurance industry, all of them battling each other. But then of course they lock arms when it comes to fighting against the trial lawyers. Uh, you know, on behalf of, of, of the medical uh, industry, you have, you know, the podiatrists wanting to work further up the leg because they, they, they feel really, you know, you know, that they're, 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 that they're being stultified by only having to work on the foot. You know, so these kinds of things that we, that we have to cast judgment on, uh, in the legislature that I think really are not the types of topics that get motivate most people to run for office. Uh, so it's been it's been interesting navigating some of those waters, and 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 certainly not something that I was expecting when I when I first threw my hat in the ring. It, you said um, the fi- that one of the things that surprised you, kind of for the worse, is the financing of politics. Do you mean that the money it takes to run for office, the money it takes to stay in office, uh, the money that flows 
through lobbyists. Can you unpack that for us? For I a think moment? it's all all of the above. All of the above. I, I think I I wasn't surprised per se about the amount of money it takes to run for office. I I think I knew a, I knew enough about the system so that that wasn't something that really surprised me. But I guess what happens is I've I've been surprised by how there's a constant chase of the money even once people get elected and that that just influences the flow of the conversation uh and and also i've seen how different special interest groups use their money to smack down legislators or folks who who may try to get out of you know be, be a little bit unorthodox or ask too many questions and they'll suddenly hit you with a with a with an attack ad or you know or or try to you know, put out something that, that just to just to just to get you back in your place, and so I've seen that happen a few times in my tenure. And it's oh, and the thing about it is that is that these are oftentimes conflicts that the general public isn't paying a lot of attention to, and so they're even things that might not even interest a journalist so much as let alone a, me- a regular voter. Uh, it's so easy for things to get caught up in smoke and mirrors in the Capitol because. There's just not enough journalists in Sacramento. People aren't paying enough attention to all of the issues that we vote on. And so that stuff, that stuff really concerns me a lot, I, I, I got to say. Second question. So how have you seen that play out? What are some examples of that dynamic that you were just talking about? Basically, I've seen situations where a legislator, and this has even happened to me, where a legislator starts... Well, I'll give you, I'll just, I'll say it. I'll, I'll, I had this experience myself where I had my staffer ask a couple of questions about a bill. I, I hadn't even really, I hadn't made any position statement. It was a bill about, about reopening the statute of limitations for sexual misconduct. I remember that bill. Good. Yeah. And, and of course, a lot of the shows that you, you 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 go on to Jessica. Um, I, I'll not always notice there'll, there'll oftentimes be ads run by law firms <laughs> that are yes. trying to solicit clients uh, under that bill, actually. And you know, look, I was on the school board in my own hometown, and and I just want to, you know, I, I I'm I'm certainly never uh, uh, I've always been very very anxious for our system to be. Uh, not only have absolutely no tolerance for any kind of sexual misconduct, uh, certainly when it comes to, to kids. Uh, and in addition, I, I, I certainly very much support uh, the right of people to get just compensation for harms committed against them. I also, uh, having served on a school board and having seen how lawsuits can really impact a school district's bottom line, which of course ends up impacting a school district's ability to pay for teachers and nurses and librarians and support staff, et cetera. Um, I'm, I'm also always, you know, interested and concerned about making sure that we treat the next generation of teachers and students fairly, um, especially if we're holding the district accountable for something that might've happened 30, 40 years ago. And so anyway, my staffer just asked a couple of very simple questions about this. And next thing you know, um, the consultant for one of the sponsors of the bill put out an ad, you know, saying the only thing worse than sexual predators are the, those who hide those who try to cover for them. And I hadn't even, I'd ever cast a, I ended up voting right. for the bill. I voted for a similar version of the bill before. Literally my, my staffer just asked a couple of questions of the sponsor's office. And it just was an, kind of a wild example of how um, any kind of attempt to step out of line 
is is going to be batted down uh, pretty quickly. And I've just seen this happen with a number of my colleagues, and there, there's some examples that are out there right now. Uh, do you want to provide us with some of the examples? I mean, I, it, partly what I hear you saying is that if you even ask questions to try and gather information, that that's a problem, and that we really do lack nuance when it comes to lawmaking. Yeah, and yep. um, when you said can fa- I fall in line, that's a I have to say that somewhat of a scary thought that our lawmakers aren't allowed to go on as searching a review as they want before they make a decision. I mean, you're certainly allowed to. There's no question. Of course, you're allowed to. But and 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 I think what ends up happening is uh, going through that. I think you have to ultimately um, be willing to take those sorts of hits. Right. Uh, and and I was. I mean, I'm, I'm in a weird way. I take that. I, I've never said it like this before, but in in a strange way, I, I, I suppose I take it as a bit of a badge of honor because most people weren't even willing to ask questions because they were so afraid of being attacked especially on something as sensitive as, you know, sexual misconduct. I mean, who, who wants to be in any sort of advertisement associated with that? Um, but in a, in, a, in a funny way, I, I really do see it as, as doing my job in, in terms of asking those kinds of questions. Um, so so I, I don't think that – so there certainly is room for legislators to ask questions and, and be their own person. But, but there, are, there are people who are paid a lot of money to make it very difficult for legislators to be as independent as they ought to be. Right. I mean, money is the mother's milk of politics. And I know that you and I have talked about this a lot in terms of ways to try and reduce the influence of money in politics. And one of the things that I'm curious about when I teach campaign finance law, when I talk to my students about how to run for office, is I always ask them, how do you get your campaign information? And it's not... TV and radio anymore. And it hasn't been for a while. It really is online sources, social media. Have you seen that shift yet as a elected member of the legislature, that shift from um, it really mattering what people see on TV and hear on the radio to really mattering what people see on a website? Or is the voting block, you know, that voting class, are they still really heavily influenced by TV and radio. I think it's, I think the voting block is still probably a little more old school. I do remember when I first ran for the state Senate in 2014, the, the best data we had, the average voter in our primary by all accounts was 65 years old or 64 years old, something like that. And so, uh, so we really relied a lot on, on, on political mail, for example. I think that was something that was, I'm glad we did because I think it really reached a lot of voters. It boosted my name ID in ways that was very helpful and uh, ultimately successful. So I, I do now. I, that being said, a lot of people are getting deeper and deeper into social media rabbit holes. Um, I, I don't know that they're in, they end up being very persuasive oftentimes because they're so they're so finely tuned to the perspective of the person who's you know who's reading them. I mean, you know, the, the, these algorithms end up just reinforcing opinions rather than convincing, it seems. Um, so I, I, I still think that TV, radio, and the newspaper really are the, the most important media through which the debates are playing out. But, but, but I think any politician moving forward who, who ignores social media is doing so at, at their own peril. 
Right. I mean, it is such a complicated place. It's really democratized information, how you give information, how you get information. Uh, and we will do a separate podcast, in fact, on campaign disinformation. Uh, I want to pivot now to another area where I thought you took a lot of heat, uh, which is the vaccination bill. And you were at the forefront of the law that said uh, you need a medical exception, not a personal belief exception, if you want to opt out of uh, a medically prescribed vaccination schedule uh, and be in the school system. And and personally, I have to say, um, thank you for doing that. And so the listeners will know my personal view on this, which is I thought that this was uh, necessary as a matter of public health, but you got enormous, enormous pushback. Was that one of the biggest battles that you've seen in recent history in Sacramento? Uh, there have been a lot of battles. It certainly was one of the biggest battles that I've personally um, been thrown into the middle of. And, and you ask about you ask about what what surprised me in my experience in the legislature. I got to tell you that that was something that it shouldn't have surprised me in retrospect, but it really did at the time. For me, vaccinations have always been a rather non-controversial no-brainer. Vaccinations are what allow me, I love to travel, for example, in a, in a pre-COVID and post-COVID world, right? I, I, vaccinations allowed me to travel throughout Africa and, 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 and you know, all over the world in, in, in ways that I could, I, I could travel in a way that I, I could feel safe and, and, and that I would be able to experience lots of different parts of the world without being put at risk of contracting some sort of dangerous communicable disease. Vaccinations also were what saved the generation after my father's generation. My, my dad, unfortunately, contracted polio as a young boy right before the vaccination became available. And he lived his entire life, um, still living his entire life, having you dealing with the challenges and, and constraints of, 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 of polio. He can't even break his own fall when he falls down. And sometimes he, you know, he loves to hike, loves to, well, he used, used to hike quite a bit and would, would go on jogs. And sometimes he'd come back with big gashes on his head because he couldn't even stop himself from falling. And that's because of the, the, the damage that, that polio caused to his arms. And I like history, right? So I'm a history nerd. I like to go to you know, houses of old presidents and you know, famous people, and and you know, you learn about the stories of these of these people. And these were people, of course, who had access to the best medical care of their day. And nearly every single one to a T has some family tragedy of a brother or sister or, or son or daughter uh, who 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 dies, uh, you know, as a child, for example, because of some dangerous communicable disease that we now have the tool to stop. So. You know, for me, I, I always thought of vaccines as such a good thing. And I was honestly quite a bit taken aback by the ferocity of the opposition to what we were trying to do. Uh, over time, I got the chance to talk to scores and scores of folks in the you know, in either anti-vaccine or vaccine skeptical communities. And uh, I, got a, I, got a, I got an opportunity to learn a lot more about their perspective, where they're coming from. It, it doesn't mean that I've changed my perspective on the validity and importance and, and value that vaccines bring. And I'm very proud of SB 277, the bill that we passed that you referred to. Um, but um, but I, I've, it certainly gave me a real window. It was, it was quite, a, um, quite an eye-opener uh, <laughs> into, into how controversial vaccines can be for a certain portion of our population. I, I really... Uh- 
Are you worried that there's going to be pushback if and when we get a COVID vaccine? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I even just this morning, I was listening to an NPR interview with Congressman LaMalfa from Northern California, and he was already talking about about how a lot of his constituents are going to be upset if there's any attempt to try to you know, push mass vaccinations on people with regards to COVID. So it's um, there's no question there's a portion of our population that has just somehow uh, they've really taken this whole um, personal liberties thing in, in a direction that I just don't think that I don't think that Thomas Jefferson would have recognized. Well, it does seem to me it's also the, you know, should you wear a mask? It's also, do you believe the World Health Organization and the CDC? Yep. I mean, it, it feels to me very much like um, whether or not you believe in scientists, whether or not you trust experts has become politicized in a way that I'm still trying to figure out how your policy perspective on taxes or the criminal justice system or immigration or reproductive rights, how that maps onto whether or not you're going to believe epidemiologists who say it's a public health issue and you need to wear a mask. And I don't, we certainly didn't plan about on talking about this, but I don't know if you have any insight because I don't really understand how those two things go together. Oh, I know, I know, I know. And I think, well, I, I do think that part of what you've seen within the Republican Party recently is a, a a tail wagging the dog. I mean, I think I think that a lot of of Republican leaders, governors, supervisors, members of Congress, etc. I think under a different Republican president, George W. Bush, for example, I think they would have been singing a very different tune. Uh, but you know. Donald Trump has, has taken over the Republican Party and his brand of, of, of libertarianism has taken over the Republican Party. And it's become very difficult for anyone within the party to think differently. And it's interesting. There was a lot of compliance and, and nobody was raising any concerns. You know, and there was a, this fledgling liberate movement. Well, once Trump tweeted his support for the liberate Michigan, liberate California, liberate this, liberate that, that really, by all accounts, helped to dramatically expand their reach and popularity and, and political support amongst our Republican establishment. So I, I, um, I, I just think this is once again, a part of our crazy culture wars and the extent to which the Republican party leadership, unfortunately has just been totally overrun by, by conspiracy theorists. I hate to say it, but I, I, I you know, I, I, it's not that I think that, all the folks at the top of the party are conspiracy theorists themselves. It's just that they have unfortunately found it within themselves that they need to, they need to, they, they, they need to, um, to pander to that tendency within the party that certainly is reflected and represented by the president. To me, that's been one of the most surprising things, which is perhaps naively, I always believed that there would be some adults in the room and always perhaps naively believe that the way our constitution is set up, we essentially, and listeners have heard me say a version of this, we essentially assume that people are going to lie a little bit, that people are going to try and get a little too much power. And that's why we have this system of checks and balances on the federal level and the state level. But our system doesn't envision this. They don't envision what seems to me to be a, a stress test that we're failing. And I don't... Um, Obviously, it's very different in Sacramento, where it's really one-party rule, but I'm very surprised that 
uh, the Republican establishment has become the party of Trump, as you said. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. And, and, and look, you, when you talk about the adults in the room, the adults in the room have kind of left the room. I mean, they, they've been forced out of the room. It's people like Dan Schnur, for example, who you know you know well, right? I mean, he was here's someone who was a very active Republican, yeah, engaged in the in the party, and was working really hard to get Republicans elected. And he he doesn't even feel as though he has a, a space in the party anymore, and he's left the party. And, and there's so many of these examples. Well, it's the it's the Lincoln Project, folks, and we actually are excited to have Mike Madrid plug yep. on a future Passing Judgment podcast that will come out very soon. Yeah. Um, or I and should th- say, and, and, and thank God for people like him. I mean, th- that it shows it's it it, t- it really does take courage and integrity to do what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, in you know, perhaps for another day, but I wonder um, would the Democratic Party similarly have been taken by a leader who I feel is you know unqualified and unfit? And I don't know if you can speak to that at all. I mean, as I said, Sacramento is really a one party rule place, but. Do you think that if there was a governor uh, who, you know, somebody who ran for governor got the Democratic nomination, do you think that your colleagues in the legislature would say, okay, enough, you know, we'd rather have a Republican than have this? I I certainly hope so. Um, You know, I I also think, and maybe I'm being naive or Pollyannish, but I I, I certainly, I, I believe that it would be less likely for the for the Democratic Party to be taken over by someone as as uniquely unqualified as Donald Trump is, um, and I think it's partly because the culture of the Democratic Party really does value analysis and policy heft in a in a way that I think that that you saw eroding within the Republican Party with the rise of the Tea Party and. And before that, Rush Limbaugh and, 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 you know, Glenn Beck and all those guys. And so I, I think, I think it's, it's significantly less likely. I think you see that reflected. I mean, the fact that even, you know, the most quote unquote extreme candidate within the Republic, within the democratic primary was Bernie Sanders, who'd served his entire, you know, served for, for decades in the Senate and had been a mayor. And, you know, is someone who, who was, was certainly had, at least from an American perspective, radical political positions, they weren't that radical at least placed into a global context, if you look at the kinds of policies that are in place in places like Europe. And, and certainly there's, there's no question that there's nobody who would put Bernie in the same category as, as Trump in terms of his ridiculous narcissism and, and, and lack of respect for data and, and for information and, and, and for norms. So, and, and, that, and that was the guy who was the most you know, wild possible candidate we could have chosen at least this last right. round. So I, I just don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't see my party rewarding this sort of Trumpian behavior in the way that the Republican Party seems to have. And by the way, I mean, let's not forget that that, that you know this all happened. It really, there, there's. It almost reminds me of that that movie Match Point, where where things could go one way, they end up going a different way. If you look at the Republican Party uh, uh, primaries back in 2016, I watched nearly every single debate. I love debates. I I, I I was watching all those debates, and you basically had a group of pretty, you know, maybe cons- maybe too, way too conservative from my perspective, but 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 ultimately mainstream Republicans up there on the stage, and then you had Ted Cruz, and then you had Donald Trump. And, and basically, I think most of them, um, you know, Donald Trump saw Jeb Bush as being the most serious a competitor. 
he smacked him down very quickly. And it was, it was this sort of get, you know, just slammed him with a couple, with a couple withering insults. And Jeb didn't know how to handle it because he comes from this genteel form of Bush politics. And, and the rest of the candidates, I think, saw that and thought, oh, man, I don't want to deal with this guy. I'm, I'm just going to kind of toil off on the side. There's no way Donald Trump gets the nomination. So whoever gets to be the first amongst the non-Trumps will be the, the, the nominee. And, and meanwhile, Trump kept coming in first place. He wasn't getting over 50 percent. He was getting 35 percent. He was getting 38 percent, 42 percent, 36 percent over and over and over again until next thing you know, especially given the first past the post delegate system they have in the Republican Party, the guy's the nominee. Uh, and and now he's taken over the party, and so it, it, you know it, it's it's um it's a it's a sad story, but it's a story about our systemic vulnerabilities too. Uh, it's a, yes, absolutely. I mean, if if there's one thing that the Trump administration has taught me, particularly when I go into a classroom and I try and talk about how the Constitution is structured, the state constitution and the federal constitution, uh, we're seeing a lot of systemic. Uh, failures. We're seeing a lot of places where, as I said, it feels to me like, you know, we're in the middle of a lab and we said, let's stress test this thing and see how it goes. And there's a lot of walls that are breaking. And um, I do want to, because I know our time is not unlimited, move on to another topic, which concerns me, maybe not as immediately and existentially as the Trump administration, but it's an issue of excitement and knowledge about state government. And uh, I know that this is something that you're passionate about. And how can we get people more excited, uh, more invested in their state government? Because I know in California, this is a huge place. You represent, how many millions of people do you represent in the state Senate? Is it so over each senator one? represents about a million. Yeah, just about a million. Yeah. We have about 40 million people in California and 40 senators. And how does that compare to other state legislatures? Oh, it's not even close. We, we, our, our districts are so much larger. Um, you know, the funny thing is I personally represent double the number. I have, I have twice the number of constituents uh, that the governor of Wyoming has, for example. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's a totally different experience in most states where even, even states like New York, they're looking at 300,000, 350,000 constituents. So California's its own beast. Should, do you think we should have more lawmakers on the state level? You know, I go back and forth on this. There's been, there's been an attempt to create this citizens legislature that brings yes. in a lot more people. I don't know. I, I, I look at places like the Congress, for example, the House of Representatives, and it's so, it's so much harder for individuals to actually be, to make a difference because the more people, the more the, the system kind of grinds into place and uh, and I, I think you do want to continue to create spaces for individuals to 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 act on their own and and be able to ask tough questions and not be part of a machine. I think it allows for more independence. Uh, you know, I look at my own you know in my own Senate. Uh, each of the senators get their own typically get their own chairmanship, and they you know the, you get a certain amount of stability, and and that actually is a good thing because that stability gives you independence and a place from which you can do advocacy and not be quite as uh, as, as committed to the special interest that I talked about earlier. So I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm of multiple minds. I, I do, I, I'm, I, don't get me wrong. I am well aware of how having a million person district is, it, it really does mean that you can't get elected unless you're able to raise a lot of money. 
if you got a if you got a two thousand person district, it's a you can literally go knock on everybody's door ten times you know, before COVID. But but now uh, in our districts, I can't possibly knock on every door. Everything is you know so much of my campaign, as I say, is is done by you know by by sending out mailers, for example, and that's expensive. Right. It's expensive to get the money to make that work. And so I'm I'm. I, you know, I, I don't think, I, I guess my answer to that concern would be, well, this is why we desperately need campaign finance reform and clean money efforts, that kind of thing. I think if we, that's really where I put my focus. I think that's where, rather than changing the size of the legislature, I, I really think the way to make the system more responsive and cleaner is to is to work on the, on the, on the reform measures that, um, that the groups like Common Cause and the California Clean Money Campaign espouse. All right, let me uh, play devil's advocate for these particular campaign finance reforms, which you know are actually quite near and dear to my heart. And so the idea is that there's a problem with the scenario that you set up, that you have to be a a prodigious fundraiser to uh, competitively run and win in office. And you're one of the few people who I think said, you know, I was successful under the system, but I still think that there's a fundamental problem with the system. And so the proposals... Uh, are all hamstrung by the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court said back in 1976, sorry, everybody, this is going to be quick, that money is really the equivalent of speech. And so when you limit money, you have to do a First Amendment analysis. And we all know where that ends, which is no limits on how much a candidate or an outside group can spend, some limits on how much you can give to a candidate, and some limits on how much you can give to certain outside groups and political parties. And the clean money proposals that you talked about are kind of versions of if you raise a certain amount of seed, a certain number of, uh, if you get a certain number of signatures or raise a certain amount of seed money that you can get, then get public funds to run for office. But one, have I described the proposals correctly? And then two, do those proposals work in an era of unlimited independent expenditures where it is clear under this current Supreme Court that a political action committee or a political party um, can spend as much as they want. In fact, kind of add a, act as a shadow campaign. Yeah. Well, I think when I say their proposals, I'm actually talking about the totality of their agenda, which which of course very much includes a repeal of Citizens United, right? Uh, and, Fair and, and Fair changing enough. this ridiculous uh, lock that the independent expenditures have over the system. Uh, another thing that a lot of people are very interested in is, is is getting back to equal coverage. You go to the UK, for example, and all of the um, campaigns are, first of all, it's a limited time time frame for a campaign. And all the campaigns are given a certain amount of access to the public, you know, to the airwaves, both public and private, to allow them to, to get out there and advertise and get their, get their opinions out there and get their perspectives out there. Uh, so that's something in addition that I think ought to be looked at. But you're absolutely right. There's no question. Um, it is. It is. We can sit. We can sit around and 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 put in place contribution limits and disclosure laws till the cows come home on the campaign side. But if if you have these shadowy groups out there that are continuing to operate with so little accountability and oversight and exposure and disclosure, uh, it, it it really does call into question the whole system. Now it's part of why you know I've actually worked closely with some of those groups to do some of the disclosed laws that have at least been shining more of a light on the independent expenditure campaign so that now as a result of our disclose act and our social media disclose act and our petition disclose act when you 
you know, when, when you see an ad on TV from a, from a, it used to be, you could just have the ad, you know, the only disclosure that was required was some fake organization name, you know, Californians for happy puppies. Now you actually have <laughs> right. to show who's paying, who's actually funding Californians for happy puppies. Is it a union? Is it a business trade organization? Is it an individual? Uh, similarly, folks are now going to have to be, you know, be told, you know, before they're, you know, forced by that person standing outside the Whole Foods to sign a petition to save Western civilization as we know it, they they will now have the right to, you know, to 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 be told. In fact, the the the, the petition collector will, you know, will will have to tell them who's actually paying for the campaign to to collect these signatures. Uh, so there's going to be more disclosure. But but you're absolutely right. Th- these are all, in some respects we're nibbling around the edges. I mean, I think these disclosure, yeah. these disclosure laws are important. At least it gives people some more tools to evaluate these messages that are foisted upon them. But, but there's no question on the long run, we have to, we have to repeal Citizens United and the, and, 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 all, and the case law that, that built up to Citizens United. Yes. Dear, dear listener, I am the rain on the parade of campaign finance reform, not because I want to be, but because, as you said, and it's not, of course, just Citizens United. That's the case that, um, you know, we all know and we talk about. But, you know, as you just mentioned, this case law goes back yep. a while. And I will um, I Casey, will stop. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I know. There's a whole bunch of cases that I mean, Citizens United was. Right, it's 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 become the boogeyman amongst the reform people. But you're absolutely right. There, they were. Uh, it was a, it was a logical next step, given where the Supreme Court case law had been going over over several decades. Right, and so I hope that you, as the election season progresses, I do hope you'll come back the and talk. Let's do a whole episode if you want on direct democracy and ways to reform. You and I would love that. We hope there's at least a few people out there uh, who would love to listen to that. And so I do want to circle back before I let you go to a question that I, I kind of bulldozed over, which is how do we get people excited about state government? And, and I keep thinking about this, but president Obama said this a while ago, which is we ask far too little of people. If all we do is to ask them to vote and say that's being civically engaged, that we need to really demand more of people. Otherwise, we have just this voting class and our lawmakers don't really represent us. And so what what are there like two or three things where you say, I wish we could do that? I totally agree with that, with that, that comment by President Obama. I, I and you know, and I and I actually I see so many people getting excited about whether it be the Women's March or the uh, Black Lives Matter efforts, the civil rights efforts that are underway right now, or, or um, you know, so many, so many galvanizing uh, things that are happening: immigrants' rights, environmental protections, uh, you know, all of Greta Thunberg and, and the climate efforts. All those kinds of things. These are vitally important issues that we uh, gun control too. I mean, I, I, the list goes on and on. Vitally important issues that need to be fixed and addressed and solved by our system. And people are anxious to get involved. And, and, and so it's not just, but you're right. It, everyone, uh, voting is very, very important. There's no question about it. But there's so many other ways to be involved as well, beyond just protests. We need more people to be engaging in, in civic organizations uh, that provide an important watchdog or advocacy role in overseeing our democracy, whether it be if you if you care about this kind of clean money stuff and exposure stuff, disclosure stuff, get involved with the California Clean Money Campaign or the League of Women Voters or Common Cause. Uh, there's lots and lots of civil rights organizations, environmental advocacy organizations, and 
um, you know, uh, immigrants' rights organizations that are out there that, that really do deserve people's support. If you like a, can, a campaign or a, or a proposition, or if you dislike a, a candidate or a proposition, get involved in the campaign. Don't just vote no or yes, but but donate money or or volunteer, make phone calls, you know, apply for a job. Government is actually more accessible than people think. I mean, that's that's one thing I'll say. I, I've I've gotten to know people who just started showing up at their local Democratic club one day, or it could be Republican club as well. And just because they wanted to get more involved, next thing you know, they've actually built relationships with a legislator, with a legislator staff. And, and they'll say to me later, I, you know, I had no idea that I could just come to an event and talk to my state senator and actually build a relationship with him or her and, and, and you know, th- that they would be someone who would actually be interested in someone like me. You know, it, it, all it took was them showing up. And, and I think there's, there's a lot of those opportunities out there that I hope more people will avail themselves of. Exhibit A, I contacted you and said, hey, do you want to come on my podcast and talk about things that are important to you? And you said yes. Yeah. And, um, I mean, legis- how- the vast majority of legislators do this because they want, they like people and they want to help people. I'm not saying that everyone is like that, but, but, but really the most, the most people who run for office do so for that reason. It's not particularly well-paid. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it really is a labor of love for, for most people who go into politics. And so they actually appreciate folks reaching out to them and try to engage with them and build relationships. That's maybe one of the most uplifting things we've ever heard on this podcast so far, sadly. Uh, As loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, I end this podcast by asking my guests the same three questions. We learned a lot from you. I want to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite for a dinner party? Well, I I was thinking about this. I I, maybe I'm all caught up in the in the in the the resurgence of Lin Manuel Miranda's uh, Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton show. Uh, I, I I would it would probably be I, at least at least this week I, w- I would choose somebody who was there at the Constitutional Convention. You know whether it was you know someone like Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson. I, I would just I'm so interested in this current moment where we're reckoning with our past, thinking about uh, the extent to which we're living by or have moved along away from the values of the founders of the country. And so to, to be able to sit there and pick the brain of, of, a, of a James Madison, of, a, of an Alexander Hamilton, of a, of a Thomas Jefferson, of an Abigail Adams, um, you know, someone like that would be, would be endlessly fascinating. And, and similarly, um, you know, someone like Frank Frederick Douglass, I mean, reading his incredible Fourth uh, of July speech sermon, uh, to, to just kind of help to contextualize the current state of America with, with, with other periods of American history. I, 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 I would, that, that's who I would choose someone, someone along those lines. Now, next, you're going to be stranded on a desert Island and you can bring one meal with you. What is it? Well, uh, if I'm really going to be stranded on the desert Island, I, you know, I, 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 my, my initial thought would be, I, I want to bring some pumpkin pie, uh, which is just the best <laughs> thing ever made. But the problem is if, if it's, if it's made right, uh, there's no way to replicate it after you've finished it. So I would want to choose something that would have some seeds that I could plant. Oh, you're trying so to get it around the system. I so like that. So I could it. actually, well, I want to survive, you know, I want to survive, you know, so, so if there's a way that I could, um, you know, if I, I would want to do some research, but it would have to be the, you know, the most nutritional series of, 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 of plants, I suppose, that, that I could then set aside a little bit to plant and then, and then, um, you know, be able to basically 
keep myself alive until someone were to come save me. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, the Navy or the Coast Guard or something. <laughs> I like that optimism. Finally, you have, <laughs> you get one superpower for an hour. What is it? Well, I think, I think, uh, as I mentioned, I, I love history and, and, and maybe um, kind of dovetailing with, with my earlier answer. I, I would love to you know, time travel. Uh, where I would go, I don't. I, I would have to sit there. If I were really given an hour, I would. Um, I would really prepare. I would really prepare to decide where to go. Make sure I wouldn't be killed, you know, immediately. But 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 could learn the most I possibly could, and just see see another see another period of of of, of human history. Um, I, I would love to. I would love to travel through time. Uh, Carlo Marinucci of Politico also talked about time travel in one of, I think, our very first episodes. So, of course, of course, we know, we know the other question is: Do you go? Do you go ahead or do you go back? Right. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe I do a half an hour back and a half an hour forward. Oh, you're really lawyering this. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, you know, I got to put that law degree to, to good use. Oh, you do. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks so much. State Senator Ben Allen. You can find him on Twitter at Ben Allen CA. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. The podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. The podcast on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And I want to thank the listeners so much. I have so enjoyed this conversation. We hope that you do too, that you listen, you rate, you subscribe. And with that, we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.